0: Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The imaginative conservative recently published an article entitled Five Defenses of Classical Education in a Time of Civil Unrest. The author suggests in his opening, some classical educators bewildered at a world on fire in which figures of intellectual and artistic excellence or moral heroism like Aristotle, Winston Churchill, Damien of Mokulai, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, Flannery O'Connor, and Walt Whitman are being attacked or preemptively defended may ignore such questions due to confidence in the value of what they do. But I believe that to ignore these questions is a serious mistake for students and the classical education movement. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is the purpose of a classical education? Do societal circumstances change our purpose and the way we approach teaching and learning? Joining us to discuss classical education in a sinful world is Miss Grace Reps. Miss Reps serves Wittenberg Academy as executive assistant and is also a graduate of Wittenberg Academy. Grace, it's great to have you here today.
1: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Grace, you and I know that there seem to be a million and one ways to discuss and present a case for a classical or liberal arts education. When I read an article like this, and there are myriad articles like this out there, it always makes me stop and think about the way we at Wittenberg Academy present a classical liberal arts education. Grace and I reside in the trenches of Wittenberg Academy, and we are constantly pondering these things. When I read this article, it immediately struck me that we should take up this topic together. Now, I want to be clear that in our broaching this topic in light of this article, we are not attacking or critiquing the author or what he has to say. If anything, this was an article of opportunity in that it gives us an excuse to ponder and discuss these things. In his article, Mr. Beyer presents five defenses for classical education. I'd like to look at each defense. So let's get right to the discussion. His first defense or appeal, he states thus. He he calls it the honesty-piety appeal. And this is what he says. Quote, first, classical education is honest and pious. It does not seek to turn a blind eye to the manifold injustices that are part of the Western story it teaches. It does not shy away from calling a false or evil idea what it is. Moreover, it traces the historical consequences of such ideas. Moreover, classical education does a difficult thing. It balances this truth-telling with a cultivation of piety towards our intellectual political and familial ancestors fallible sinners all end quote now there was in there a little example after false or evil idea and that example that he uses is uh, quote racially separate facilities are constitutional and good so that's that's uh, an end quote so that's an example that he gives about calling a a a false or not shying away from calling a false or evil idea what it is. So he's saying that something such as racially separate facilities are constitutional and good, that that would be an example of calling a false or evil idea false or evil. Okay, Grace, let's break this down. I think... I'm on the same page as Mr. Byer here, but I can't get away from our Christian worldview. He refers to calling a false or evil idea what it is, and perhaps he's just using different different verbiage, right? You know, it, so it, it might not be that we're on on different pages or saying different things, but I like to call sin sin. I think sometimes when, when you get into this, well, let's just call it a false idea or a, an an evil idea it, it, that has a different connotation than calling something sin. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: I think um, that as a society, we have a tendency to sugarcoat the idea of sin. Um, you know, we come to this idea of, You have your truth, and I have my truth. And I think that we use this as a coping mechanism to, you know, avoid awkward and difficult disagreements. But as Lutherans, as Christians, we know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. So we can't, we can't uh, avoid calling sin, sin. We have to tell the truth and defend the truth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um sometimes we we shy away from that either because now and and I should qualify we I think sometimes society shies away from that because number 1 they don't believe that Jesus is the way the truth and the life. Mm-hmm. And and so the, there becomes this kind of muddy self-righteousness and if if there's a self-righteousness rather than christ's righteousness then we can get into or we can fall into calling things false or mistakes or Mm -hmm. you know that's a bad idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know rather than uh, rather than calling something a sin i i think People avoid that word sin because it carries weight you know to call something false versus to call something sin yeah. that has that has a pretty different outcome in terms of how we then deal with it
1: right yes and I think that like you were saying the the law is intended to show the weight of sin. I mean, it's, it serves as a mirror and a ruler and a curve and it's, it's not pleasant <laughs> for it to right. mirror our sin, but it's, it's what it was given to us for. So.
0: Right. And that's, that's a, a really good point because when, when we see our sin, you know, kind of like Adam and Eve, <laughs> when we're shown our sin, our first inclination is to hide we don't want to see our sin and i wonder if using soft language about these things you know instead of calling something sin we use things like mistake or Mm -hmm. false or you know that's a bad idea as a way to not implicate ourselves in in what In what is going on. That's a really good point. And the thing is, we have to be careful that we don't let society decide what is and is not sin. Because there's a good chance that society, in their desire to hide from sin, are going to misuse the word sin and make it convenient so when when society is calling for apology tours and to to apologize for for things we have to first and foremost go to scripture and understand from scripture from what god says whether something is actually a sin and i don't think we necessarily have to get into into details and examples of that but i think a broad overarching understanding of how we define sin is important and the fact that what is and is not sin has not changed through time the sin of of adam and eve is our sin as well And so anything that is called sin that God has not called sin or anything on the other side that is not called sin that God has called sin. Yeah, um, we, we need to be aware that 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 God's law, not man's law or man's preference or man's convenience, but God's law is what defines what what is sin. Yeah,
1: I think that all humans understand the power of the word sin. So they, you have to guard against how they use the word sin. They can use it truthfully, or they can use it, you know, to get ahead in their agenda. And I think that it's something that we just need to watch out for.
0: Right. And not using the word sin yes. as a manipulation. Yes. Right, right. Yes. To to further an agenda. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So circling back around, the the first defense of classical education in a time of civil unrest, Mr. Byers says is the honesty piety appeal in that classical education is honest and pious insofar as It identifies, it doesn't shy away from dealing with false and evil ideas. But perhaps, and maybe this is just me, I don't know if that is strong enough. I don't know if that's strong enough language. And maybe I'm just dissatisfied that he didn't go far enough. Right. It's certainly true that the Western story or our Western heritage does not shy away from calling false or evil ideas false or evil, but it also, and of course, you know, in an article, you can't, you can't cover it. You know, you have to, you don't want to have scope creep, right? You know, you can't cover everything. So, so again, I'm not, I'm not picking on Mr. Byer, but, but this allows us to, to say that not only does our Western heritage, the Western story, not only does it call false or evil ideas false and evil, but it also doesn't shy away from calling sin, sin. And that's important because many in our world today do shy away from calling sin, sin, or they call something that is sin not sin or something that is not sin they call sin
1: and then you run into the issue of children students not hearing what is sin they hear it as false ideas and they don't make the connection that some things are sin some things are sinful it's just the law so i think that that's another Aspect of why it's so important to call sin sin, so that we can teach our children to recognize sin and to always keep the Ten Commandments in mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's a fantastic point. This is why I always talk about. Well, I always talk about a lot of things, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but I always talk about the fact that in. In reality, a classical education, a liberal arts education is not in its richest form if it doesn't involve catechesis. Mm -hmm. You lose something if you don't have that marriage between the liberal arts and catechesis, because then you run into that situation where you come across these things through history that you know are sin but if you don't know what sin is right then you can't identify it as such
1: exactly
0: and so you just have this well that's kind of, that was kind of an awkward time in history <laughs> <laughs> right instead of having a you know that was sin and we can see that and obviously all sin Is a sin against the first commandment. So we can look at the scope of history and we can say, well, they were fearing, loving, and trusting something, Mm -hmm. whether themselves or something else, above God, you know, whether that was power or whatever the case may be. And yet at the same time, we also have to look at the fact that God, in his mercy, worked and still works in time in the lives of sinful men.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And so we don't want to forget that aspect of things either. But we also don't want to rabbit trail all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) So, So moving on, Mr. Biden calls the second appeal the those who know history appeal. Okay, so we, we had his first appeal for classical education in our times today was the honesty piety appeal, and his second appeal is the those who know history appeal. He says to this, quote, secondly, classical education is sensitive to the past and inspiring for the present. Classical education offers its books and subjects to students as from a particular moment and as possessing sapience that transcends time or place. Classical educators bring students to an encounter with a broad tradition of philosophic realism and in the case of religious schools, like Wittenberg Academy, he didn't say that, I just entered that in there. (laughs) In the case of religious schools, a theism, while treating all great texts and traditions of thought with a measure of deference and humility. Such an approach equips students to understand this moment in the life of our nation, this moment right here, right now, in the life of our nation. We can enter into dialogue and seek real and good change while remaining aware that injustice in society begins with injustice in the human heart and that the injustice will never be wholly extirpated, although we must never cease the effort End quote I think this is my context matters and we teach context claim uh, but before I yammer on did anything strike you about this defense or this appeal the, the those who know history appeal
1: well I agree with with you and I think what the author is getting at is important that context does matter and I think This is one of the most important aspects of classical education, because having a firm grasp on these issues is is very important, and students get this grasp by reading original sources, by understanding the context of these sources, and really learning how to listen to other people's arguments, other people's beliefs and processing them through the Lutheran worldview. And if we don't teach kids how to listen and contemplate these issues, how will they ever form their own opinions? And they won't. They'll they'll latch on to what society is telling them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And without that that context, without the without understanding the events that happened and the context in which they happened and that that context does matter. Not that that context can't, you know, not that those events and what is learned from those events can't apply in a different context, right? You know, this idea of timelessness, this is why we study, you know, certain things, but if that context is ignored, then history is easily rewritten.
1: Right. Yes. As I was reading through this, and I know that he mentions uh, Dr. King several times, but it it brought to mind the recent riots and the violent riots and um, how they're rioting in the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it brought up one of my favorite quotes from his I Have a Dream speech that um, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. I think that that's a great example of not understanding the context, you know, writing in the name of Martin Luther King without understanding all of the context of what he stood for.
0: Right, and even just taking one line out of your speech, you know, there's a lot
1: of lines you can take from that speech. Right.
0: (laughs) But, but, but the line that you brought up, I have not heard anyone chanting that one (laughs) in the streets these days. You know, I mean, they, they talk about uh, peace and they talk about justice and they talk about all of these things, but They don't. Can you read that quote again?
1: Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred.
0: Can you imagine how it would change the circumstances of our society right now if they were chanting that? (laughs) I mean, they wouldn't even be out chanting because well that kind of diffuses everything right <laughs> right yeah and so i mean that's that's such a profound point that you've made grace that when you lose the context of events or of people or of what they said and you you just you pull something out and hold that up on your placard, Mm -hmm. you can send a really different message than what was intended.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So I think that taking that a step further, that knowing history is absolutely essential. But if we just know history, you know, if we just know dates, if we just know the names of people, if we just know, you know, a quote pulled out here and there, that maybe we don't actually know history. Because if you don't have the context as part of that, if you don't, if you don't ask, as historians ask, you know, why did this happen? And, well, what, you know, in order to answer those questions, you have to ask, uh, you, in order to answer those questions, you have to have context because it explains why people did what they did. You know, we have to consider the people around, not just the famous figure in history, but the people around them. One question I, I like to ponder sometimes is the influencers. You know, who influenced George Washington or who influenced Thomas Jefferson or who influenced, you know, because then you get, you start to have some insight in terms of why did they write what they wrote or why did they say what they said. And so if you just study kind of this readers digest version of history, <laughs> you know, or popular history or the the history that for example, the 1619 project is putting forth. All of a sudden, you have a very different view of things that is not true if you don't have context you can start to question if what you know is actually real history so mr buyer moves on then with his third claim that being the wea media appeal and the wea media appeal says, quote, third, while classical education has been painted as an extreme view, opposing the moderate sensibilities of more common forms of pre-collegiate and university education. It is, in fact, a middle way between extremes. That's what uh, via media means. It means a, a middle way, a middle way between extremes. Take, for instance, canon formation and maintenance. Classical education is a tradition with principles upon which it forms a canon of great texts, including significant works that oppose or that did not originate within said tradition. Ah, the book lists. For some in the classical liberal arts world, uh, these lists become doctrine to the point that if such and such a book is not included on the list, it calls into question the legitimacy of the classical education. Bottom line, there's not enough time in a child's or a young person's formal education to read all of the great books out there. As you've said
1: before, education is a life list, not a checklist. So even if, I mean, obviously, We can't read all the great books in high school, but those books should give you a firm foundation to continue reading great books once you leave high school.
0: And that is one of the great things about reading timeless works because you join with centuries or millennia of scholars who have read those same books and because of the timelessness and the richness of those of those texts, you want to continue reading and you want to continue growing and learning. And formal education isn't, I mean, in the whole scheme of life, your formal education is kind of a blip. Yes, <laughs> You know, I mean, if you put all of your eggs in that basket, that's a, a relatively small basket.
1: You can't learn everything there is to learn in the four years of high school. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even though we try to give them a broad and yet deep exposure to the canon of our western heritage there's not enough time they have to keep reading and they have to keep exploring and they have to keep pursuing and this is kind of an interesting thing that at least i hope for our scholars that when they are are done with wittenberg academy they won't be satisfied, you know? It's kind of like you get a drink of water and that first sip, okay, so it's hot outside and you take a drink of water and that first sip is, oh, that was great. But then immediately you're like, oh, wait, 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 I need more. And you down the whole glass, right? You know, that's what I want a Wittenberg Academy education to be for our scholars. In that, the world outside—I mean, it's hot out there, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a hostile it's it's a hostile environment, and so we want to refresh and equip and sustain our scholars for life. But that can't be it if the only sip of water that they take is is the wittenberg academy sip of water and they don't continue you know immersing themselves in that and refreshing themselves with that then eventually they'll become dehydrated and no different than the world So I want our scholars to to have a taste and I want them to drink deeply of our Western heritage and of the catechesis in which we engage at Wittenberg Academy. But I don't want them to end there. I want them to keep going and keep reading and keep learning. Because there's life in that. You know, if they, just, if they just study the Bible when they're at Wittenberg Academy and then stop reading the Bible, they're going to starve and, and wither and die. Their faith is going to wither and die. And we know that. And that applies just as much to all of our learning as it does to catechesis. You know, Luther talked about the fact that we never outgrow the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. That daily we should return to those things and we should look at the whole of our learning in that very way. That we keep returning to to the sources. We keep returning to this education that we've begun. I mean, really, if you think about it, a Wittenberg Academy education, a classical Lutheran education, a liberal arts plus catechesis education, it's really just the beginning. In fact, to a certain extent, our main job is through using enduring Sources, enduring texts, those things that have endured, we're just teaching them how to endure with enduring things. It can't be the end, it's only the beginning. Grace, when you were a scholar at Wittenberg Academy, did you?
1: Have that experience? Yes, definitely. I think that all of the teachers, through the text that they chose, through their teaching, through catechesis, were not only preparing us for lifelong learning, but lifelong learning as we serve our vocations well. We're not only learning for ourselves, we're learning to serve our neighbors in the vocations that God gifts us with.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point and really sheds an important light on what we do and really pops the self-centered, elitist bubble that sometimes people associate with a classical education. There's this reputation, that a classical education is somehow elitist. But what you just said, that the education that you are receiving, you're learning not just for yourself, but you're also learning for your neighbor so that you can serve him well. That vocational view of classical education is so important and i think is lost perhaps outside of a lutheran understanding of who we are and and why we're here Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so going back to that timeless aspect of things we always start the Wittenberg Hour talking about that, yeah. you know, we give scholars that which endures by means of that which has endured. So those the the means by means of that which has endured, that which has endured are the works that our scholars are, are reading and processing and interacting with. Those things are timeless. They've endured. And, you know, society has changed. Over time. And yet it really hasn't. You know, the things that we're seeing today have happened before.
1: Right. Nothing is new under the sun. (laughs)
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And sometimes I think that the 24 hour news cycle and the instantaneousness of social media and just how constant always those things are at us that we forget to pause and remember exactly what you just said, that there's nothing new under the sun and God's word endures, right? The word of the Lord endures forever. So having a timeless view of things Everything that we read is going to speak not only to the time in which it was written, but also to our time.
1: Yes. This is the advantage of choosing timeless works, right? Yeah. They Speak to the societal shifts no matter when they take
0: place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think that, that having that perspective allows freedom... Insofar as, like we were talking before, a formal liberal arts plus catechesis, a formal Wittenberg Academy education really is only the beginning, but it will serve to sustain scholars. It will serve to help them endure if they continue in the things they have been taught. So Mr. Bayer goes on, we've reached his fourth of five appeals in his article, Five Defenses of Classical Education in a Time of Civil Unrest. His fourth appeal is the unique resources appeal. And he says this, quote, fourth, classical education provides unique resources by which to seek justice today without abandoning truth. So the unique resources appeal allows us to process our current times with resources that might not be in the toolbox of your typical progressively educated young person. Because they they haven't studied the scope of Western history. In, In some cases, Anything associated with Western history has become forbidden, (laughs) a topic Mm -hmm. of of study. And so when you have an entire portion of history removed or ignored, you really have to scramble to understand where we are today. Mr. Byer is making a case for classical education within the context of a time of civil unrest. In other words, he's making an appeal for people to consider that classical education can be of help and of use during these crazy times. But his wording here, classical education provides unique resources by which to seek justice today without abandoning truth. And I wonder, we hear this word all the time, right? This word justice. We hear, you know, justice for so-and-so or justice for so-and-so or justice for so-and-so. We hear this word justice a lot. And thinking about the canon of books that we read and thinking about the things that we ponder in a liberal arts education, the word justice comes up there too. But I don't think that justice in a liberal arts plus catechesis education mean the same thing as the word justice that's being thrown around today. Can you remember when you read Plato's Republic? The whole thing, the whole thing is regarding the question, what is justice? So you have an entire work devoted to this question and I'm quite certain the justice that is being sought today, justice is spoken of a lot in the canon of Western history. And, you know, we certainly learn in catechesis about justification and so this word justice is not is not a foreign word to us it's been contemplated and considered for a really long time and yet there's something extremely unfamiliar about the way it's being thrown about today the justice they seek is it really justice at all and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what is what is forming their understanding of these things you know if you have a very narrow pop culture taken out of you know, quotes taken out of context, understanding of the world, you're going to use the word justice, but you're not really going to mean justice. And so I think that the resources that we have at our disposal, the resources, the the readings, the people that form our scholars allow them to really ask these questions like, what is justice? What is truth? What is beauty? You know, all of these things. And going back to what you had said earlier, that the standard for all of those things Is God's word and we can't we can't deviate outside of that for our understanding you know from Instagram posts or (laughs) or whatever the case may be because because then we end up asking for something that doesn't actually exist if they are wanting justice they need to understand what justice is. And once they understand what justice is, is that really what they want?
1: Right. And I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before with um sin being, the word sin being used as whatever people translate it as. I think that, you know, you say all the time, words matter. Words have a lot of weight. And I think that the word justice is just another example of people using the word in the mindset of what they want to come out of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So they're they're using the word to get something, but justice isn't what they want to get. Yes. Yes. And who knows if they actually know what they want to get, right? you right. know? And, but this is, but this is the thing. Having read Plato's Republic and having, you know, worked through the canon of history, that equips scholars to be able to engage with neighbors who are, seeking justice and equips them to be able to understand what justice actually is. And looking at things in a larger sense helps and equips scholars to show their neighbors from whom justice is actually derived. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have man-made laws. The government has laws that are supposed to protect life and property. But that derives, you know, these human laws derive from God's law. You know, there's, there's a higher standard for why it's not okay to burn down somebody's business and steal all their stuff. It's not just because, you know, I can't just say, I don't like you, so I'm going to burn down your house. You don't get to set that standard.
1: Well, in, in the modern sense of the word, you could, people would say, you're justified in doing that because that's what you want to do and you deserve justice.
0: Right, absolutely. And so when you get to define your words, that gives you license to do whatever you yes. want. When we immerse young people in a world, and this is it, this is not the world that Wittenberg Academy scholars, uh, in which they are immersed, but when you immerse young people in a world that really revolves around them and history, is within you know today and the day they were born <laughs> you know that that's that's what encompasses history and and making a name for yourself is is the highest goal and feeling good about yourself is the highest aspiration you end up needing to define things however you need to define them in order to fit that narrative. But the problem with that is that you end up despairing because on every level, you know that you're not good enough. And you know that try as you might, you can't justify yourself, (laughs) you know, and you can't find reconciliation with God. And catechesis tells us that that's impossible. They're trying, I mean, really, they're trying to beat death. Yes. And we know, scripture tells us, that the wages of sin is death. You can't beat death. I can't beat death i have beaten death but only because i'm baptized into christ and to to seek to win at life whatever that means mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but but to seek to to elevate yourself above your circumstances or whatever the case may be, I would guess that in every case, the driving force or the result is to make yourself God, to make yourself the judge, jury, and executioner, when in reality it's It's God's law and God's standard. And because it's God's law and God's standard, and because Jesus is the only source of victory over death, we're going to die. You know, this side of heaven, we're going to die. But then we have life eternal because of Christ. And if you don't have that understanding, you have to call things like justice. You have to redefine those things to fit what you need them to mean. So the ideas of the Western tradition, the truth of scripture, these things transcend the here and now. And because of that, they give us a perspective on our current time so that we can process what's going on and so we don't have to fear or get caught up in what's going on in our current day. But we do have to stand for truth. And in order to stand for truth, we have to know what truth is. So finally, we come to Mr. Byer's fifth appeal. He calls it the secondarity appeal. And he says, quote, fifth and finally, classical education and the Western heritage it teaches is not its own, end quote. In that, he's suggesting that there's a certain humility that has to exist for something to be timeless and enduring. Even if the characters in the past were not humble, right? Even if they thought more of themselves than they ought, there was still a sense of, in their quest for greatness, That they wanted to be something, they wanted to be part of something that was greater than themselves. And I think that's what contributes to timelessness and things that endure, is that there's always this desire to be part of something bigger than yourself. But in order to be that, you have to be humble enough to be part of something and further down in
1: his secondary defense he he says quote moreover classical teachers can imitate frogs rome by humbly laboring almost unseen to bring the treasures of the western heritage to students in the hope that individual students will be formed in wisdom and virtue and develop habits of receptivity and dialogue so Even the act of teaching through a classical education is this humble labor. Yeah, that's a
0: really good point. In that the teachers, there's a certain humility that they have to have in order to guide and equip their scholars to live in humility so that they can be part of this tradition it's kind of like not it's it's the opposite of do as I say, not as I do, right? right. <laughs> right? You know, in order for a teacher to, to teach this, the teacher himself has to realize his place within all of this, that, that he is part of something bigger than himself. And he is, I mean, it is a formidable place to teach some of these great works because you're constantly thinking to yourself, who am I to think about and ponder and help my scholars ponder Plato and Aristotle and all of these pillars of Western thought, you know, who am I to be part of this But the only way to be part of it, and the only way to help our scholars be part of it, is to have that humility. That's the key. In order order to realize what is good, true, and beautiful, you first have to realize that you yourself are not good, true, and beautiful. Right? You have to realize that you are not the standard, that the standard comes from God. And so we learn from these pillars who were certainly sinners themselves. We learn from, from history. We see this in scripture too. Martin Luther talks about this in terms of when we, when we think about the saints and when, when, when we commemorate the saints that we don't commemorate the saints because of how great they were. But they were models of, of living sometimes and not at all times in their lives, but at sometimes in their right. life, but, but the, their faith. We remember them for their faith. and that faith was given to them by God. And so there is in this, in this whole conversation, There has to be an understanding that the times in which we live, they don't define us. They don't determine who we are. That all through time, all through Scripture, Things have been defined, people have been defined by who God is and the relationships that He has given us in our vocations. So, all in all, a classical education, because it is a timeless education, is one that transcends the times in which it is happening. So, for example, a Wittenberg Academy education eight years ago was not defined by the times it eight years ago, just as a Wittenberg Academy education now is not defined by 2020. <laughs> you know, 2020 has taken on this whole new definition. Like you say 2020 and that's a very loaded year. But it it's not defined by 2020 because our times do not define us. And that's why studying enduring things help us endure. Because they don't confine us to our times, they place us as part of something that has endured so that we might endure. I
1: I think that's what Mr. Beyer was getting at when he ended his article with this, quote, let us therefore with humble confidence set out to defend classical education without being defensive to value the manner in which it can help us think about the challenges of our times and to support it as it grows and matures as a renaissance of learning in wisdom and virtue for the 21st century.
0: Absolutely. And so we carry forth in humility and we carry forth in confidence that our efforts are not in vain and that they equip scholars to love and serve their neighbor in the vocations in which God has called them. Grace, thanks for joining me today. It's been fun. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website, at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on The Wittenberg Hour.